So hello and welcome to the Pinch Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Anuwin. So I am, I always say this about all of my guests, but that's why I choose them to be guests. But I am particularly excited today to um, welcome Carly Mountain into the podcast because we are talking about one of my favourite myths. She is the author of Descent and Rising, the embodiment of the Inanna myth. And so welcome, Carly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So your book, very much about the myth of Inanna and the idea of the initiation of the feminine. How did you come across Inanna? Because I love what you said on your website. And it was like, I found this story and that was it. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it's so reflected your life. You're now dedicated to the whole kind of like the embodiment, the embodiment of that, that process of the descent and then the rising again. So how did you stumble across that myth? And when did you, when did you go like, oh my gosh, this is it? Mm, mm. So I stumbled across it through a wonderful woman called Linda Hartley. And I had been to one of her workshops on um, another myth called La Loba, which uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes writes about in her book, Women oh, okay. Who Run With The Wolves. I'm not familiar so, with that myth. Oh, it's wonderful. If you love Inanna, you'll love it. It's oh, okay. all about the wolf woman and basically singing over the bones to bring to life the wildness inside. Oh, like, okay, yeah, uh, I've heard of that then. I didn't know the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous and very earthy and wolfy and animalistic and mm. magical all at once. Yeah. And so I'd been on this Wolf Woman weekend with Linda and I bought her book while I was there. And inside her book, it's called Servants of the Sacred Dream. Inside of her book, she has a part where she tells the anonymous and talks about the symbolism and the, the way that it spoke to her. And I just was like, this is my life. How is there a myth that speaks so closely to what I've been going through in mm. my life. And it just, all the lights switched on inside me. It was like lighting the corridors of the darkness that I'd been navigating and bumping into and just being a, in a big mess, basically. And all of a sudden, there was this sort of, I want to say structure, but it doesn't feel like quite the right word, but you know, like a map. Like a it was a map, map. Yeah. a map that so, helped me. Yeah, I was gonna say, so, so for those that haven't, aren't familiar with the myth, mm. how would you sum it up in like a few paragraphs? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. people go and read the myth. It's amazing. And you can get very short like summaries of it. But what was it about? Like if you give us the overview of the structure of the myth and then like sure. how you like plugged into that. Mm. So Inanna is a goddess of sexuality, so she's already very much standing in her own shoes. She's definitely not sort of the, the damsel in distress by any stretch of the imagination. But her sister has been in exile in the underworld. And so she wants to go down to be with her. But to do that, she has to go against all the laws of the upper world. She goes against the sky gods and their heady thrones. And she chooses to descend. And this is what I love about Inanna. It's like she's not dragged there like by some dark god. She chooses, mm. I am going to the underworld. It's her desire that leads her there, her desire 
to know more and to go down into the dark because she knows that there's fertility there. She knows there's something there to retrieve. And so she goes to the underworld, but Erishka girl's furious about it and is like, Inanna will come naked and bowed low. And so Inanna goes down through the seven gates of the underworld. And at each gate, she's stripped of her upper world power. These things could be seen like symbols of mm. our roles, personality, identities, like wasn't identities, it? Yeah. exactly. And so by the time she gets to the seventh gate, she's literally, the robes are taken and she is naked. And she meets Ereshkigal, but Ereshkigal is not up for a loving sisterly reunion. And she stakes Inanna and hangs her on a meat hook to rot. And so it's not, it's not a light fairy tale. It is a visceral, quite bloody, um, dark story. And yet when she staked her, she then Erishka girl starts making these birthing noises and sort of feeling the pains in her body. And um, above ground, Ninshaba is basically banging the drum for her. That's like the witness and kind of going for help to, to try and get someone to help her return. And she calls to Enki, who's a gardener. He's like a soulful sky god. And he creates out of the dirt underneath his fingernails these two little magical beings that go down into the underworld like flies and empathize essentially with Ereshkigal. And as they do so, um, she offers them a gift of water, the gift of life, and Inanna ascends. And then the second half of the myth is all about rising. It's all about kind of stumbling. There's still a lot of stumbling in rising, but stumbling out of the underworld with this kind of new uh, new understanding, new depths of being and figuring out how on earth we now walk back into our life. Embodying the lessons we've learned and the things we've discovered. And that means saying no when we're a no and saying yes when we're a yes. It means sacrifice, sacrificing perhaps some relationships, some old ways of doing things. Maybe the job has to go, maybe, you know, all sorts mm. of things. Um, and then finally, really um, rising rooted inside of our own darkness, inside of all that we are, as opposed to a fragmented, splintered version of what we are. Yeah, it's. Oh my God, I, I just love this myth, and I've shared before, but this Anana Ishtar was one of the first goddesses that ever spoke to me. And when I read that myth, I was just like, oh, again, I loved it. And you just you just shared it so so beautifully there. So I just want to thank you for that. But it's it is, and I just, I just loved how you even said like the stumbling and like walking into the darkness, into the unknown, into your power, but of choosing and you know lots of times we get thrown into the darkness not by our own choice but to have that ability to choose and to let go of all of the things you know the breastplates the the, the jewels the crowns you know all of the things that have status in the world from a external point of view just to be left with yourself nothing else just you and still to choose the because we know every time we make a choice, I, I love the word like decision comes from the word to cut. Because when we make that decision, we cut away everything else. And it's like to be so clear that we have to sacrifice those other things when we choose something. 
And I think that's why a lot of people struggle with decisions because it's like, oh, but it feels so final. And it's like, yes, and that's the beauty of it too sometimes. It doesn't mean we can't remake another choice and skirt backwards. But it's like to cut away, to let go of all of those things, to go, this is who I am. Because one of the things I'm quite passionate about, for anyone that's a regular on the show, um, is letting go of the expectations, the judgments, all of the stuff that we've been taught and all of the stuff we've learned. And it can be scary to go, actually, that's not mine. I'm stepping away from that. I'm going to be disloyal to that belief because it doesn't serve me. It's not being loyal to me. And it can leave you feeling naked and vulnerable in a cave going, holy broomsticks, how do I navigate this? Because I think Mm -hmm. one of the themes that you mentioned in your book, a lot of the women who contributed to the book, their stories, there can be a sense of like loneliness Like, oh my God, I'm a different person. How on earth do I step back into, air quotes, normal world Mm. um, when you've gone through such a profound change? And I just love that about the story. So you found the story, you've got the chills, you're like, oh my gosh, there it is. Mm. What happened next for you? A lot more loss. (laughs) Mm. Um, I think... I was inspired, but I needed to, I think this is the thing that we, this is a cyclical mythology. I don't think we just go down linear, come up linear, and we're done. Mm. There's concentric cycles inside of the cycle. And um, what I had been foraging for, I felt really inspired at the time. I was trying to find a way of holding containers for other women to work with this Mm. and um there wasn't much modeling for that in the world that I had come from it was all much more hierarchical linear structures it was very much sky gods yeah and so in order to do that I just had to shed so many old ideas and ideals that were no longer serving me looking to somebody else some another authority to validate my work looking for someone else to validate my mothering, looking Mm. for someone else to basically tell me that I was doing the right thing. All of that had to go. And I had to really dare to, as you say, stumble out and kind of dare to be naked in what the ways I was going to be doing things. And I think the really painful thing, that cut that you're talking about, it often cuts through relationships with the people often who are closest to us Mm. and some of the people who I thought I would never have a cut with I some of them I lost entirely out of my life and some of them I very nearly lost and actually through the repair the relationships have deepened but it was a really painful time of seeing seeing the masks inside of myself and those around me and the ways that some of my closest relationships were rooted in things that actually I could now see were not were not not true and and not and actually stifling me yeah relationships is a really tricky one isn't it because we bond through a relationship with where we are with the knowledge that we have at that time and so you both take on the role of what that person kind of needs it's like maybe I mean even in romantic relationships it's like perhaps 
in fact, this this happened in my first marriage, is that um, we got together and it was like love at first sight. And now whenever I tell anyone it's like love at first sight, I'm like, please be careful. That's quite often issues. <laughs> you know, that's quite often woundings going, oh my God, you're perfect for me. Absolutely. And as as the relationship went on and I started to grow and change, it was like I was breaking the contract that we had that I was this type of person and he was that type of person and why we were both playing out those roles everything was wonderful but as soon as one of those people like air quotes breaks the contract the dynamic of the relationship shifted and it and it what it just there was like nothing inherently wrong so to speak from the outside you know from all of the trimmings of life Mm. but suddenly we weren't connecting in the same way because I was unlearning a lot of stuff that I'd kind of taken for granted or just like absorbed over like a lifetime. Yes. And that other person wasn't kind of growing the same way. So it ended up that that growing apart Mm. and, you know, that can be incredibly painful, but I mean, it doesn't have to be like the relate the the romantic relationships also happens in friend groups. And I think one of the things a lot of women struggle with most is when they've had childhood friends but they've been my friend for 30 years. And it's like, if you can recognize that that relationship might only ever be able to give you the idea of, oh God, do you remember when we were kids? You know, Mm. and that's valid, but it might not be able to give you the depth of who you're becoming. And like you said, they might not even want you to change because in relationships, people often want us to stay the same because we're giving a need, you know, we're fulfilling a need that they have by performing in a particular way. We are very complex, aren't we? (laughs) And so I have a lot of people saying, oh my God, I feel like I'm losing everything. But it is that Mm. Anana shedding, isn't it? And it is clumsy and just stumbling sometimes. Mm. And yet I think if you can hold witness to it, when you come out the other side, (laughs) battered, bruised, scraped, a few battle wounds, you're just like, oh my God, why didn't I do this sooner? But that descent can be terrifying in all sorts of ways. So how did you support yourself through that? Because I mean, that's a courageous thing to be able to to do. So I was really fortunate that just as I started to descend, I had actually met my teacher, Kim Rosen, who is still my teacher to this day, uh, almost a decade later. And she is what is a teacher who is, she doesn't work directly with this myth, but she's utterly drawn to the dark as well and Mm. is very much about truth-telling. And I don't say that in a sort of, this is my truth kind of holier-than-thou sort of way, but very much like, what can you tell me the truth about where you actually are right Mm. now? And so much of about Inanna, so much about the nakedness, I think relates to truth-telling. And we don't tell the truth very much, particularly as women, we're very accommodating. Not not all of us, I hate to generalize, but many of us are very, it's one, it's a female superpower, right? Our estrogen makes us incredibly accommodating and collaborative, and that serves nature and serves us as humans. But the shadow side of that, I think, and certainly in myself, is that I wasn't really telling the truth to myself mm. or to others. And it was very subconscious. It was a yeah. survival strategy. And so um, to be held by Kim 
and the containers that she creates that really supported me. She, it was the first time that I was able to enter a space and grieve in company. Mm. And I'd gone to this workshop and literally on the second day, I was just stood in the middle of this room in a great big salty, snotty mess, <laughs> hugging someone who I'd only met a few hours before, bawling my eyes out in a way that I had never, ever done with anybody else, mm. ever probably maybe when I was very, very little, but you know, not as an adult. Yeah. Oh God, there's something so, uh, there's something so needed in that. Or there was for me, at least. I don't know that some people would find that horrifying, but for me, misery does love company, right? It really does. (laughs) I was about to say the people that find that horrifying are probably the ones that actually need it the most. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I, I just think that, you know, like, oh, I probably did when I was younger. And I think I often think about that as children. It's mm. like when you have a tiny baby, they scream their lungs out if they want feeding, if they need their nappy changing, if they're tired, if they want entertainment. They have no qualms in expressing the fullness of who they are. And, you know, yeah. and hopefully they're in a position where those those needs are met and they feel safe and nourished and nurtured. Um, obviously, we know that's not always the case, but they are absolutely un- unapologetic in getting their needs expressed. And then they start to get older. And then it's like, oh, can you just be quiet for a minute? Shh. No, we don't draw on the walls, you know? And it's like all of that, that bigness, that bold, you know, like dancing on tables and wanting to decorate all the things and explore all the things and tell you all of their things. It's like suddenly that gets squished a little bit and they get Mm. rewarded for being quiet or for being a good girl or for being mummy's little helper or all of those things. And they're like, oh, hang on a minute. I, and I think a lot of time, like being good gets confused with being loved because actually you're getting praise and you're like oh if I can you know a lot of people I'm like oh yeah I'm such a chameleon I can really work with loads of different people and be fit fit in lots of other groups and I'm like yeah that's a superpower and it's often holding you back too because you're learning how to be all the things to all the people instead of learning just to be you like to 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 stand there naked maybe not literally (laughs) but to actually just be present within yourself. And I think it starts from tiny, tiny hood. And then people get frustrated that they haven't met, managed to like fix it in like a weekend. And I'm like, we are talking decades and decades of expectations and judgment, particularly, again, not wanting to be gendered about this, particularly on women who are the natural caregivers who'll be often, I mean, thank goodness this is changing, but we often be the ones to stop work, to look after the children, sometimes by choice, sometimes by expectation and should and that's a lot of pressure to carry isn't it of like Mm. being all of the things to all of the people I I (laughs) my little boy um he's what he's nine now um but when he first started at school they'd be like hey and they'd be like hey it's mummy and I and I was like no it's Rebecca (laughs) it's like they'd be like oh it's Solly's mummy and I'm like no it's Rebecca it's you know I have one child I still don't consider myself a mother at all I'm like no it's Rebecca first thank you very much Um, (laughs) as much as I love and adore my little boy he's absolutely scrumptious but yeah I I really struggle with that maybe it's because like I'm a geriatric mother but um yeah it's it's a title I never thought I would have and it's a title Mm. it's a title I'm delighted to own but it's not something I want to be identified as so even with these like little five or six year olds I'm like no it's Rebecca (laughs) my father's just (laughs) laughing at me like Rebecca they're kids I'm like I know but I'm a person (laughs) (laughs) don't 
to identify me by my relationship to another person. But yeah, it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? It's very, very complex, many, many threads. Mm, and this is what I love about the seven gates because, mm. so for example, our crown, when I talk about our crown in the book, it's all of those roles, be that our profession, our mothering, wife, lover, whatever, daughter, um, the ways that we are seen and the ways that we are seen by others and the ways that we both want to be seen in that and the ways that we do not want to be seen in that. Mm. And I think this, all that socialization that you're talking about, all the things that are put on top of us, all the ways that we learn to shape ourselves to other people's expectations and needs, that is what Inanna is stripping off. That's part of what she's stripping off as she goes to the underworld. She's taking off all of that socialization and discovering who she is underneath all of that. Who is Erish Kagal? Who is that dark one? inside of all of us, because we all have this, we all have these parts that have had to be often for survival and to get love and to fit into society. Mm. We have to put certain parts down into the underworld. Um, And the body remembers. The body doesn't forget them, right? The body remembers them. We put them down in the pelvis Mm. as far away from our heads as possible. And so part of the descent is also coming back into our physical body and feeling what's there, feeling what's my gut saying, feeling Mm. what's my roots saying, what am I rooted into, what's my heart longing for, what's my voice, what am I voicing, what am I not voicing, what, yeah, what's holding me back, what am I colluding with that actually is keeping me I'm keeping me in the underworld somehow, right? I yeah. we keep ourselves there. Um, and I think Anana's choice is the moment where we go, actually, it's not worth it anymore. I can no longer <laughs> betray myself. This. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've done, that's it. I've had enough. I don't care. Yeah. And it's interesting, yeah. you know, you talked about like you move it away as far as you can and you put it in your pelvis. And I always think that I, I've often described that space as that kitchen drawer, you know, the cupboard <laughs> under the stairs. It's where we put all of the things that were like, oh yeah, that that menu, you know, the Allen key from Ki- um, from my the Allen key from IKEA, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the random screwdriver you found, and it's like, oh, I'll just put it in that drawer. I'm like, maybe it's just me that has one of those drawers. No, it's like we a bit of everything. It, we call it the messy drawer in yeah, our house, yeah. and it's just like. <laughs> Oh, this emotion's come up, but I can't deal it right, deal with it right now. It's a bit inconvenient, so I'll put it in that drawer. I'll deal with it later. And of mm. course, we very rarely actually go back and get. Oh, let me just unpack that, or let me journal around that, or let me go to therapy, or whatever it is. It's just like mm. it gets squished and squished and squished and squished, and then we have symptoms. Yeah, and you know, the body remembers. The body will get your attention, and often, if we carry on ignoring it it speaks louder and louder and louder until you're like, okay, I now have to pay attention. Absolutely. And so again, I love the Anana story. It's like, okay, before I get to that point, let me mm. choose, let me choose to address this because I mean, I've worked in therapy that I've worked in for like 25 years and every single time people come to me, they're like, oh, I've got this symptom. And I'm like, hmm, should we look at the energy behind it? Look at the emotions behind it, shall we? What's actually going on? Yeah. You know, and there's always been a, a, like an emotional, a denial of self, a betrayal of self that has mm. led to that moment. I always remember I had this one person <laughs> and she'd be like, 
I'm so tired. I'm like, well, you better rest then. She's like, I can't. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And I'd see her again. She's now got a cold. And I'm like, you haven't stopped yet, have you? And she's like, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And then I get a phone call. I've got sciatica. I'm in bed. And it's Mm. like, yeah, you maybe could have avoided the sciatica if you'd actually prioritized the rest. Because the body, the body is going to make you stop, (laughs) even if it has to lay you up for a couple of weeks as the only way to get you rest. Mm -hmm. Because again, I think our society really doesn't celebrate rested, nourished people. No. It wants us to be frazzled, exhausted, and we don't get to make good choices. We don't get to be embodied when we are tired, when we are hungry, when we are malnourished in all of like emotionally, spiritually, physically. And it's like, we can't make those good choices then. It's easier to become consumed by everyone else's expectations and buffeted along the world. Mm-hmm. So I love that the, the way that you talk about like that descent as a pathway to a more intimate connection to your magic and initiation mm. to self. Speak into that for us. Because I know a lot of people are like, oh, that feels like big work. And it can feel it can feel scary and liberating to step into that descent. But what why would you advocate for stepping into the darkness as a as a space of like initiation? Mm. Well, I think it links to what you've just been illuminating through those client examples of. I kind of think of the inanimate as the most ancient map of trauma healing that we probably mm. have, because what you're describing is that pinging and ponging between a hyperactive nervous system where we're going, 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 doing, 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 and we're well outside the window of tolerance in the middle where we're comfortable and nourished and okay. We're hyper, 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 hyper. And the only thing that brings us back down out of hyper is hypo, which is the crash back down to earth. Then we crash and we're in the crash and we're struggling with that. And as soon as we get a bit of our juice back, we tend to zip back up into the upper world. So we could think of Inanna and Ereshkigal as those polarities, as Inanna, the one that keeps it all going and is Mm. the upper world and is perfect and will can be all the things to all the people. And then Ereshkigal is like the crash that we crash, the earth we crash down into when we exhaust ourselves. Yeah. And in the middle of that, in the middle of those two is pleasure, juice, creativity, embodiment, uh, embodiment yeah. um, being in our comfort zone and being able to feel and be in life in a way that is much, much fuller and doesn't keep snapping between these two things. And so I think the initiation is actually heading towards being in our window of tolerance, being inside of our bodies and our lives more fully. So I think people associate initiation with sort of difficulty. And of course it is, but in a sense, we're already in pain if we're flip-flopping mm. between those two polarities all the time, because what our body is trying to do in the crash is bring us home. And so for me, an initiation is actually a homecoming. And when you say being in touch with your magic, I think there's something really scary about being in touch with our magic because then we have to really own it, as in we have to really step into the truth of 
what we are yes and what we are a no to and feel our natural limits rather than actually trying to pretend that we're superwoman and then crashing down onto the floor when we discover again that we're not or when no one's looking Mm, yeah so I would go towards it because even though it's painful the chances are if we haven't gone towards it we're probably already in pain Mm, but it's just a known pain Yes. I was I was thinking about pain. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's like when it's not there, you don't notice. <laughs> I was I was thinking it's like um you can you know, you can have an ache and then when it's gone you forget that you had the ache, you know. Mm. But when you've got the ache, you can you have ways to kind of like numb that out. So like the the highs and the lows, if that just becomes your normal, you forget what it's like to feel grounded and centered. And then yes. when you do feel grounded and centered, it suddenly feels unknown uncomfortable and weird yeah and and it's like oh because I always I always describe like most people are a little bit to the left of themselves because when I'm like oh you know come back to your own body I'm like I know that sounds odd because surely people are like yes but of course I'm in my body I'm a human and I was like yeah but most people are slightly to the left it's like they've left their body Mm. because of trauma capital t little t whatever because of comparison because of life because of judgments because of comparison because of all of those things Mm. and i always think like from an energetic point of view if you've like slightly left your body because it's like it feels an unsafe place to be Mm -hmm. you then have a space that is going to get filled up but with energetically with judgments and expectations and then it becomes this like weird melting pot of not really your truth anymore, but now you can't untangle what's yours and what's not. Mm-hmm. And yeah, being British, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Um, I always love <laughs> to say you have to be full of yourself. And I love saying that because it's such an un-British thing to say. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is like full of your own dreams, your own desires. And whilst it might feel uncomfortable as you come back into your own body, it's actually the safest place for us to be. Because mm-hmm. when we are embodied, we can't take on the judgments, the expectations, the shids, the noise of the society around us. Because like you say, we know our edges. We know what our yeses are. We know what our no's are. Mm-hmm. And of course, for anyone British out there, it doesn't mean being completely selfish in a like a really narcissistic, horrible way. But it does mean being honouring yourself that, you know, you matter and so do other people rather than everyone else matter matters and I'll take scraps. Mm-hmm. So how do you navigate that with like your clients or with your own work of that allowing yourself to come home to yourself, prioritizing yourself and your needs, your yeses and your nos in a world that's like, oh, golly, that's very selfish of you, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, it is selfish because we are prioritizing ourselves. But equally, I think we need to be selfish. Again, not in a no one else matters kind of way, but as in like, you're allowed to have needs, wants, desires, passions. You're allowed to have your own needs met. So, I mean, how how do you navigate that? Mm. Was it an issue for you when you started cutting away all of the things? Yeah, and, you know, often the only way we discover where a boundary is is by getting it wrong. It's that mm. old saying, we have to be had to know we've been had. And I still, to this I've day... i that expression. Yeah, I think true, it's yeah. great. <laughs> Yeah, and it really lets me off the hook of um, being really harsh on myself if I get Mm. it wrong or if I've said no when I'm a yes or yes when I'm a no. 
because I still do do that. It's not like I've emerged from the underworld and I'm perfect. Actually, this is an ongoing learning for me. And But what I can do more of now is notice and feel, yeah. really important, the feeling part, feel when I have... Um, my teacher Kim always says to me, when did you tell the first lie? And if I, tr- I find that really helpful because if I'm feeling really stretched and if I trace it back in any particular situation, I can usually pinpoint the moment where I didn't say, actually, I can't do that today or actually, yeah. I'd rather not do that or actually, that's not okay with me. And that to me is is an ongoing practice that that I don't think I will ever perfect, but I will continue to engage with. And I guess that's what I encourage with my clients. It's like, where inside of this have you not said what needs to be said? And can we turn towards that? And then usually with that comes a hell of a lot of self-flagellation. Oh, God, I'm still in this pattern. The shame comes up. The mm. sort of I should be doing better than this by now. I should know, but oh god, why do so know, many people think that I should yeah. be here by now? It's like why whose time scale? Well, yeah. it's so tempting, though, isn't it? But mm. actually, I think what that that is a, another defense mechanism against feeling the pain of the fact that we've abandoned ourselves again. And so, can we just feel the feelings that are there? underneath all that judgment and drop down into them, which is dropping back down into the body, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can start to do that and learn that it, it won't kill us, those feelings won't kill us. They might be uncomfortable, but usually what happens after is a natural down regulation. It's the avoiding, avoiding, avoiding that keeps us up in a more dissociative state. So for yeah. me, it's about being with what's here. And sometimes we need someone else to hold us in that, particularly if as children, we didn't have that holding. I think it can be almost impossible to to hold ourselves to come into those darker, more difficult places. And, and so that's why therapy or having a beholder or a guide, I think, is so important. And in the anonymous, you know, we've got Ninshaba is a witness, Enki is a witness, Geshtanana brings compassion. There are the, the witness is modeled again and again and again at all different points inside of the myth. Witnessing and and having a friend or a, a trusted other yeah. to really be with in this is so important, I think. And I think if you think of like the status and power Inanna um, had before the descent, of, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like she still needed help. And I want people yes. to really hear, hear that because so many people are like, oh, I should be able to do this by myself. And it's like, why? Why? You're human. So for Nana, mm. with all of the privilege that was given to her as queen of the, you know, queen of above, yeah. and, um, above and below, heaven and earth, those are the words we're looking for. Um, you know, the, the queen, and she had all of that help. It's like, why would us as like little mere mortals think we could do it by ourselves? And yet, I don't know if I kind of like blame the 90s a little bit for this of like, you know, girl power and I'm going to be independent and I'm going to do it all my own way. But it's like, but we don't have to. We're not designed to do it our own way. And I always think we only know what we know. And sometimes we need that space holder just to hold space and give us a different reflection of it. Or even when we're stuck in our own patterns. 
Well, yeah. it's like getting stuck in a record. You just do the same loop because that's all it knows how to do. And sometimes you just need someone to come and pick up the needle of the record and just go, look, there's another song on here. <laughs> you, know, you don't mm-hmm. have to play that same one over and over again. But mm. there is this real, like you said, I should be further along by now and I should be able to do this alone. And it's like, no, those are the things that are keeping you stuck. Absolutely. Yeah. And whenever there's a should, there's always some shame in the mix, I find. Well, I but, um, the sh- Shh, the should and the shames. Yeah, yeah. We need to shh all the of those. <laughs> we need to shh, <laughs> shh, shh, shh and the shame. <laughs> but I think the way we try to deal with shame often is by doing exactly what you're saying. We ping to the other polarity. So, mm. oh my gosh, I'm so, I hear this one quite a lot. I, I'm so codependent. I need to be in my power. And it's like, well, then in which case you're just pinging from one polarity to the other, which essentially are kind of mirrors. Mm. I think what Inanna and Erishka girl teaches is that actually it's not about doing it all on our own and being utterly self-sufficient, nor is it leaning in so much that we lose our own shape. It's about moving in between those two things and going, oh my God, at the moment I need help. I'm going to ask to be helped or held. And then in other moments going, I can stand in my own two feet in Mm. this, but I know that there's support nearby and moving between that's pendulation, right? That is a healthy nervous system response to be able to be in relationship with wherever we are and with others and not have this fixed idea of where it is that we should be because then we're not present with what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think again that's really important because we are taught that there's a consider you have to be like a flat line of life, uh-huh. often just that line to the top. But it's but it is that's not life. We are not one, particularly as women. If you have any kind of hormones, it's like mm. good luck trying to you know maintain that exact persona, that exact feeling, that exact way of being throughout life because we're not designed for that we are definitely ebbing and flowing all the time and just because you have like that phrase isn't it because you have a bad day doesn't make you a bad person or doesn't mean you're doing life wrong it just means it was a bit of a rubbishy day and guess what we get another one um you know (laughs) goddess willing but you know we have another day we wake up the next day and we're like okay now I can make new choices or different choices or maybe I do need to get some help or maybe I need to step away and brave it and do it my own way but it's Mm. It's not one size fits all forevermore. And to be quite frankly, that would be boring. And I often think <laughs> we live in a world that wants us to be a monocrop, but I'm like, we're an English country garden. We're shrubs mm. and daisies and sunflowers and roses and jasmines and honeysuckles and sages and, you know, oak trees. We're all of the things. We're not just one thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that one thing, but we shouldn't all try and aspire to be one thing. It's like, you talk about like rewilding through the descent and it is, yes. it's like, we want to be a bit more rough around the edges. <laughs> you know, mm. we, want, we want to be a little bit more disheveled in a really nice way rather than the facade of having it all put together. I often talk about, um, have you heard of an author called John O'Donoghue? Yes. He wrote a book called Beauty and mm-hmm. I love that book. And it talks about beauty, but not from like how someone actually looks, but the beauty and the rhythm, the beauty and the ebb and the flow, the music and the math and the seasons and how we can actually find our 
safety from the consistency of those rhythms and that's the true essence of beauty not something looking picture perfect and Mm. that's always stayed with me and I'm just like yeah I just love that idea of like rewilding around the edges the wild edges Mm. (laughs) not to force the wildness it's not like going I'm gonna be wild just because it's the right thing to do but just allowing your own wildness which to some people might look anything but wild but if it's your edge it's your choice and it's interesting as well isn't it because I think when I first started to rewild myself I being typically Scorpio had this image of wildness (laughs) being quite sort of um fierce and messy and you know yeah yeah and then one day I was like do you know it can also be that lioness laying on the floor in the sun doing nothing it can be totally wild (laughs) yeah well the fallow part is is a wild part going back to what you were saying about Mm. rest you know being fallow is an aspect of the wild that's hugely necessary um but what I also love about rewilding is the relationality of it you know the ecosystem you talked about monocrop and I Mm. couldn't agree more that actually what is it like to be rewilded as a human being in this time where actually it's so consumerist. The beauty ideals are so um, contrived. Speaking of beauty with John O'Donoghue mm. and, and, and what does it mean to step outside of all that and rewild into, into a more biodiverse landscape, both inside, but also recognize ourselves as part of nature part of that web of and and the earth has her stories that she is telling us all the time and I think as human beings one of the things about the sky gods is this elevation above nature yeah and away from and to sort of over control nature and use it as a resource that's there to just just for us and it's like actually we've really got to change our relationship with that as well and I, and I think that really speaks to the idea of power as well. Now, mm. a lot of people that I work with, when I talk about power, they, they get a bit nervous around it or they're like, oh, but they're afraid of their own power because their experience of power has been power over. So you're talking yes. about that hierarchy. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, when you look at corporations, often, not wanting to generalise, but I think it might be a safe generalisation, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they're not as loving and caring and have that relationship with the earth or the minerals they're mining or the way that they're taking the things from the earth as perhaps they could be but it is again it's like that sky god hierarchical above Mm -hmm. and actually would it's like coming back into relationship with power as power from within not power over Mm. you know the power of choice that power of sovereignty of or uh, you know authority over your own I suppose it's responsibility, actually, isn't it? Responsibility for your choices, for yourself, for your relationships, how you show up, you know, the energy, the attitudes that you bring to the world. Yeah. And I think that's why I feel so, like, always connected to nature because it's constantly teaching us that, you know, mm. keep it keeping us rooted if mm. if we allow it. Because something I, th- I think is um, something you wrote in your book, and I love this, and I think it very much speaks to you know, the consumerist society right now, or maybe I've misunderstood how you meant it, but it said nakedness is not necessarily synonymous with authenticity. Sometimes it's just overexposure. 
<laughs> and I love that because people, I think sometimes people do go in a oversharing moment and sometimes you know sometimes it's appropriate sometimes it's not you know we you get to decide what the oversharing is but it is interesting that you've used that phrase sometimes it's just overexposure because I think sometimes when people are like but I'm an open book you can ask me anything mm. I've done that in the past I'm like ask me anything and I would be honest about stuff but I was actually using it as a shield to keep people away from me it was like I was in control of the narrative then mm. um but I think sometimes it is that oversharing when does that become over overexposure and when mm. is that actually like a true heart connected vulnerability that has the the ability to touch people and like you know like the myth when you read the myth you're like oh, that touched me and you really got it so how mm-hmm. how has that shown up in like your work or your observation of the world on this idea of like like that nakedness sometimes being overexposure mm. I think like what you're saying, one of my strategies, my social strategy, strategies was to overexpose as mm. a younger woman. And um, again, it was a nervous system response. It was, it was a learned behavior to give too much of myself away was normal for me. Yeah. And it would always leave me with a really unpleasant feeling the day after a real vulnerable feeling of overexposure. And what I realized through working with Anana and through my descent and rising was that actually I had equated being naked as being both truthful and authentic. Yeah. And it wasn't true because actually when you give too much of yourself away, you're actually just not looking after yourself. It's not Mm. really anything to do with authenticity. It's actually it's something else. It's some, it was in it was it was shadow acting out, and I didn't know. And so I feel like one of the things we have to learn to do as we rise is learn from what that stripping has taught us, because we do feel naked as we walk above ground. But actually, in which case, we need to get even better at looking after ourselves. And I think that's what in the final part of the myth, when Inanna is emerging, she has to make a sacrifice. And um, she says no to sacrificing Ninshaba, her witness. She says no to sacrificing her sons because they both are humble. They've missed her. They've witnessed her journey. Then she meets her husband, Dumuzi. He's sat on her throne. He hasn't even noticed she's gone. He's dressed in all his fine garments still. And for that reason, she knows that he has to be sacrificed. And that for me is such a powerful moment because it's the moment where if, if all of these characters are, are symbols of our own inner self, the, the masculine is often equated with the, the structures, the boundaries, and the resources that we have. And so how are we resourced in this moment? If our resource is wanting to be elevated and ignore the underworld part of us, it's not going to resource us. It's going to sell us out all the time. Mm. And so Demuzi has to go and be humbled. And as he then, if the masculine and the feminine can then come into a new relationship inside of us, then what the masculine can do is start to be our protector rather than our slave driver or the one that will not tell us where our own edges are. And I feel like that was a huge learning for me is, is 
how much do I actually want to give you in this moment? How does it feel for me to keep something back for myself so I'm more resourced? And why is it that I, as soon as I have some power or some energy or I'm well resourced, why do I want to give all my resources away? Like, what is that thing about shame of being okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I think so much of what compels us, to, and I do think, again, this is a really female trait because I just see it in so many of my female clients and friends and myself and family of, you know, as soon as we've got something, the, ten, the temptation is to then give it away and spend it all at once to make sure everyone else is okay. It's like, wow, where is the discomfort in me? of feeling really full of myself, as you said mm. earlier, of feeling really full. And that takes time for our nervous system to kind of plump out to be a better container for our own fullness. Mm. And to really, because actually also women are and have been attacked for being full of ourselves. You know, women who stand in this fullness still get so much more. I was listening again with my daughters to um, Laura Bates' wonderful TED Talk, the Everyday Sexism TED Talk, and she's speaking to all of the horrendous abuse that she received when she started to step into this conversation about how women are treated mm. day to day. It's a reality that we have to live with, and it's not, it is real, it is there, it is scary, and we do tend in general to be safe enough in the West to be a bit fuller in ourselves yeah. than perhaps we have been. And so, yeah, to not overexpose, to not give too much away. What does that mean for us? What does it mean um, to be full of ourselves and to enjoy that? I mean, God, pleasure oh lives gosh, there. I know. Pleasure I've lives there. <laughs> I was talking to someone the other day and it was just like, just like, be so full of your own magnificence that, you know, it's just like savor your own flavor. It's like, what does it feel like to enjoy your own energy before mm. you give it out to someone else? And I, I saw this, like, I can't remember if it was a meme or whether it was like a little Facebook thing. And it was just like, you're allowed to say no if you're not exhausted because you don't want to become exhausted. Yes. You know? Hallelujah. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I've got the energy. I should say yes. And it's like, you're allowed to say no, even if you're not tired because you don't want to become tired. And I was like, high five that person. Um, and it's so yeah. true, isn't it? It's like, oh, we have something we, sh we, you know, we could share. And it's like, yes, but at what cost? Mm. You know, and mm -hmm. it's like, yes to being generous. But again, going back to that, like being full, it's like the reason I advocate for it so much is because when we are full, we can give more generously from a place of fullness, which comes from generosity and joy and fullness and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we give from a place that's empty, it comes with the energy of frustration and depletion and resentment. And it's like, mm. what would you rather receive from someone? Would you mm -hmm. rather receive generosity or, or resentment? You might think you're holding the hiding the resentment, but energetically they know and you know. And it's like, so it's like you're doing everyone a favor by yeah. holding yourself to the standard of fullness. Mm. Yeah? I feel like um, 
sorry to interject. Yeah. I feel like Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent. I don't know if you've ever worked with that, no. but it was something that I worked with and discovered through my own journey to the underworld. And it's so beautiful for looking at these relational dynamics mm. of give and receive, taking um, what's in the shadow. She's got four quadrants. I would look it up on YouTube if anyone's yeah. interested. Um, she's got lots of free resources on there, but it's all about these relational dynamics of exactly what you're saying. If I'm giving, am I truly giving mm. or am I just being a doormat, which would be yeah. the shadow? And, and you know, um, if I'm taking, am I taking from a place of, you know, gratitude or am I actually perpetrating in my taking and yeah. da, 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 da. it's really, really brilliant framework for, for working with these relational dynamics that are alive in all of our relationships and with ourselves. I mean, it's such a. Yeah, because it's like, are you giving from a place yeah. of generosity or are you giving from a place of fear? Because mm. they are completely different energies, but the yes. action looks the same. Yes. So we're like, oh, but I'm so I'm so kind. I'm so it's like I, I knew this one person. They're like, I'm just so generous. I just love giving. And they were in a position where they could financially give to other people. And I'm like, are you really giving from generosity or are you annoyed if they don't appreciate you as much as you as they think you should? I said, mm. because then it's about control. Yes. Yeah. And they were like, what? And they they were like, oh, no, no, I give it because it, it brings me so much joy to give. And then I spoke to them a little while later and they were like, yeah, it was about control because I resented them when I didn't get what I want, what I felt they owed me. And yes. I was like, yeah. So, yeah, so many dynamics to unpack. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so Definitely. Where do you recommend people start? Because like you say, there, there are threads upon threads upon threads of like, oh, my gosh, there's so many things to look at. Obviously, read your book because people will recognise the the stories within themselves. I think that's always, like you say, the witnessing, the recognition. Mm. Stories are such a powerful way to teach, to understand, to explore. But where would you recommend someone start if they wanted to say yes to that, to their version of the descent? Mm, mm. Well, it's interesting you ask that because I just held a Descent and Rising online retreat and the final call on that was called Invoking Inanna. And actually what emerged was that the core teaching was that actually we don't invoke her, she invokes us. And in my experience, if there's a <laughs> desire inside of you for this, which there is for many, many people, she will invoke you. Mm. And all you then need to do is say yes. And that might mean saying, yes, I'm going to seek out a therapist now and look at this thing that I've been ignoring for ages. It might mean saying yes to um, something you've been avoiding for a long time, like having the conversation with your partner about not enjoying the sex that you're having or um you know, saying no to a demanding family member, it can be very small. I mean, those things are both quite huge things, actually, but it can be it. it I think what I, the message I'd kind of give is that it, it, it echoes through all layers of our lives from the very, very small interactions all mm. the way through to the really big ones. So it might be saying when a friend next says, oh, can you just do this for me? You stopping for a brief moment and thinking, am I really a yes to this or am yeah. I a no to it? And if you're not sure saying, 
I'm not sure. Can I get back to you? It's one of my favorite sentences. Yeah. Give yourself now. time. It's Give okay yourself to ask time. time. Mm. So there's not one, there's not one thing I can say, but it's usually you talked about edges earlier. It's usually moving towards an edge that's uncomfortable. Mm. So if you think you're being selfish, what I often say to my clients is if you think you're being selfish, there's a red flag to be more selfish, whatever you think that means, rather than be less selfish. It's yeah. like turning it around. So there are so many ways that we can say yes to this. But I think that if we are going towards this path, life will keep pointing your nose in that direction. And if it's keeping pointing your nose in that direction, eventually saying yes, yes. is the answer. <laughs> I, I, I think it's one of those things, like you said, oh, I feel like I'm being selfish. And you're like, well, you need to be more selfish. <clears throat> and it's like, but I don't want to be a bad person. And it's like the very fact you're even questioning, will I be a bad person by being selfish? You know, you're not going to be a bad person by being selfish. You know, whereas people that are the bad version of selfish, it needs a new word rather than selfish. Um, they're not even questioning whether what their impact is on anyone else. So I think the very fact that you're even asking about, oh, will that make me too selfish? Or, you know, what about other people? Isn't it, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, yeah. the very fact you're questioning it means you need more of it. Isn't and, it? and I think a really good question is always, what is my fear in being seen as a bad person? Because I think one of the things that we're afraid of is not only being unseen, but being seen in the ways we don't want to be seen. And we all have a part of us that's greedy and needy. We all have parts of us that, you know, don't always tell the truth. We all have parts mm. of us that are, we have dark parts of us. We are not perfect. And can we risk, can we risk that being seen in the lights that we don't want to be seen in? Because oftentimes I think when we're trying not, when we're trying so hard not to be seen as something, it's going to be acting out somewhere else because you're just giving it more energy. You're giving it mm. more energy and, and to suppress it, it means it has to just come out the side door. It doesn't mean it's not going to exist anymore. And this is what we do with Erishka girl. We try to push her down. And then, as you said earlier, so clearly she will act out in a symptom or in a, in a shadow way. So can we turn towards the patterns that are repeating themselves inside of our lives and ask what they're trying to show us? What are you trying to tell me? So how has embodying the myth changed your life then? Oh, I mean, gosh. apart from like the dedication <laughs> of your work, you're like, Rebecca, every single part of it. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, just like, oh, I, I don't know, sometimes... And, you know, we've, we've talked about like the, the descent part as being like quite a big undertaking, but we're making mm. these choices every single day. You know, so sometimes those, those descents might be micro moments of, yes, of, of a decision absolutely. rather mm -hmm. than, I, I quite like, you don't have to go and eat, pray, love yourself around the world. You can you still do this, <laughs> keep your nine to five and maybe some of your relationships if they're <laughs> nourishing. But how has like embracing this way of living, of embracing the darkness of, you know, the descent and the ascension, we, you know, we can't forget about that. Once we go down, we come back up, yeah. like more aligned, fuller, you know, more powerful, in the, like that healthy power. Mm. How has that like impacted your life now when you 
like navigate the ups and downs of life? I am more robust and more resourced, mm. without a doubt. Um, I I very much used to operate out of a place of constant depletion. And I still have a tendency to go back to those patterns of overdoing, overworking, et cetera, but I'm quicker to catch them. Yeah. And um, I feel like I am more in my body than I have ever been. Isn't that a and gorgeous feeling? It's wonderful. And it's so it odd is. if you've never experienced it because you think you're in your body anyway, because that's Mm-hmm. You know, I have a body, but when you feel embodied, yeah, real gravitas to it, doesn't it? Mm. And it's just like, oh, scrumptious. <laughs> yeah, and my capacity for pleasure has grown exponentially. <clears throat> I mean, for me, I love that you talk about magic on this podcast, but you know, for me, one of the places I contact magic is through my sexuality. I work with people as a sex therapist because I feel like that is where the magic really comes mm. alive inside of us in that creative energy. And yeah, to be a more robust, embodied woman means that I can experience pleasure that I, untold pleasure that I always hoped and longed to experience that now I can experience and it continues to grow and move me. Um, there's this beautiful line, roomy line of there is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. To me, that is magic. And mm. that when we rise, we rise in the body. We flower, we blossom like that English, English country garden. And it's just beautiful. And the gratitude and love that I feel in in all aspects of my life now, even when life is throwing the stuff at you that it does, yeah. I still feel utterly grateful for every breath. Yeah. I think the, the I think I don't know if there's some like overlooking of the body that goes that goes on in our society right now. In many spiritual circles, it's all about becoming 5D, 12D, 123D. And it's like, that's great. And we're here having a human experience. Mm. And it's like we have to stop like zipping off without being rooted into the truth and magic of who we are without being rooted into our body. And like we've talked about, the body can be a very uncomfortable place, Mm. but it's about coming back into relationship with that, which is, you know, where the good stuff is. It's the pleasure. It's the magic. It's all of all of that, that juiciness Mm. that just makes life just that much more magical, I think. Mm. Fantastic. So, Carly, where can people come and find you? So you can find me at my website, carlymountain.com. And I'm on Instagram, Carly underscore mountain. Um, On my website, if you sign up, you can still take part in the Descent and Rising online retreat, which were seven conversations with eight wonderful guests all around these themes that we've been discussing today. Um, And yep, obviously you can get my book. You can get signed copies direct from Womancraft Publishing, which would be to support a brilliant independent publisher as well. Um, Or you can get them from wherever you get your books from online. And I'm just really hoping that the book can be a resource for anyone because I think books can be witnesses and books Mm. were so important in my own descent and rising. And that was really what inspired me to write the book was that I felt so alone at moments in my descent and 
I've heard from so many people since it's come out who are contacting me saying, gosh, this has just really met me in this thing that I'm walking with. And it's just, I'm so glad. So yeah, yeah. please do buy the book, share the book if you enjoy it. And um, and yeah, come and find Stories me. Stories are so important, aren't they? It's like they we really teach are. through stories, we connect through stories, we inspire through stories, we relate through stories, you know, we entertain through stories. It's mm. like all of the things. And I think sometimes when you are on this path, whether it's a spiritual path, whether it's like a unlearning all of the, the past path, whether it's opening up to your own magic, you can feel a bit alone because yeah. it's still, even though it's like my entire world, I'm like, what do you mean you don't talk about magic? That's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> that mm. it is still not what everyone does and no. so when you're doing this and you're stepping away from everything that you have been taught about yeah. what makes a good person or what makes a bad person or you know what makes someone selfish or all of those things it can be like oh my gosh am I losing the plot <laughs> you know mm-hmm. is this the right thing and then you come across a book like yours and you're like oh thank goodness it's not just me yeah. that is such balm to the soul mm. and it can just give you that I, I guess that the courage to go oh I'm not alone it might be mm. the words in the book but there's still a recognition like, like you said the witnessing yeah. that holding that space that you can return to again and again on those days where you're like oh my god can I do it you read that story again and you go I can it's okay I want that pleasure <laughs> I want yes. the energy. So yes. thank you so much for sharing your story and regaling us with tales of a Nana. Oh, thank you.